0: So this is the last of my lectures on Shakespeare for this term, and I'm going to talk about The Merchant of Venice, a comedy which dates from around 1596 to 7, the same sort of time as Henry IV Part One*, uh, and fl- fitting sort of chronologically, I guess, between Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is slightly earlier, and Merry Wives of Windsor, uh, the Henry IV plays, Uh, Much Do About Nothing, which are slightly later. It's a play first published in quarto form in 1600 and then again in the folio in 1623. So the title character of The Merchant of Venice is Antonio, a melancholic figure who undertakes to borrow money on behalf of his friend Bassanio, who wants the money to woo a wealthy woman, Portia. Antonio agrees with Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, that he will borrow 3,000 ducats and that the forfeit, if the money is not repaid, will be a pound of his flesh. Bassanio goes to Belmont to participate in a choosing or wooing ritual which has been set up by Portia's dead father, potential suitors ...must choose between a gold, silver and lead casket in order to win the hand of Portia. We see the princes of Morocco and Aragon choose gold and silver wrongly. Bassanio chooses lead and thus wins Portia for his bride. News comes almost immediately that Antonio has defaulted on his loan. Bassanio hastens back to Venice... Portia and her gentlewoman, Nerissa, go to the court, disguised as a lawyer and his clerk. They manage to turn the tables on Shylock, who is forced uh, to allow the bond to lapse, to convert to Christianity, and to give his money to his daughter, Jessica, who has meanwhile eloped with Lorenzo, a friend of Bassanio. Back in Belmont, the identity of the lawyer is revealed. Now, there are lots of questions uh, that I think Merchant of Venice raises for us, and in some ways I've chosen uh, a slightly uh, off-centre one. I decided to focus the lecture around the question, why does Bassanio choose the lead casket? In part, I think, because that can help us open up the play's um, deep and sort of thoroughgoing engagement with issues of money uh, and mercantile culture which i'm going to be talking about but also help us think about the play uh, and genre so why does pisanio choose the lead casket there are a number of reasons i think we could propose for that right at the start he probably chooses because like anyone who has read a fairy tale he knows it's the right one to choose folklore stories are preoccupied with the choice of three and with the reiterative process of wrong choosing. And they're also preoccupied with structures in which things which look glamorous and uh, exciting and desirable prove, of course, not to be so. So anybody who has read their fairy tales would probably have a pretty clear sense gold and silver are uh, fake uh, sort of idols in this, in this choosing that led the one that doesn't seem desirable counterintuitively is, of course, the one you must pick. Freud notices in his essay on the caskets in Midsummer Night's Dream that Shakespeare has shifted the gender roles in this story. In Shakespeare's source, The Jester Romanorum, a woman has to choose between three caskets of gold, silver and lead in order to be allowed to marry the emperor's son. So it's interesting how Shakespeare has, has flipped that uh, apparently flipped at least, uh, that's that scenario here. Uh, the woman is being, is in some ways being chosen rather than choosing. Freud, ald- F- Freud, however, argues that the caskets in fact represent different versions of woman and that Bassanio's choice is thus interestingly paralleled by Freud with King Lear's testing of his three daughters at the beginning of the later play. So the point about that is that the choice test is, of course, already deeply familiar in formal terms. We and Bassanio know the genre. Secondly, Bassanio has to choose lead because the play has already shown us the other two alternatives being chosen. So even though the mathematical probability of choosing gold, say, is the same for each of the suitors, the fact that one earlier has already chosen it doesn't make the likelihood of somebody else choosing it any less uh, any less probable. So even though mathematically we could have three suitors who all choose gold, we know that structurally that would never happen. It would be boring. It would be, it would be uh, re- repetitious. So it's structurally inevitable that the three suitors each pick one of the three available choices and, of course, that the first two pick the two wrong ones. Otherwise, why would we have the wrong ones picked at all. So we've already seen the revelation of the gold and silver caskets therefore the play says it's time for us like Bassanio to see what's behind the caskets in t- exterior. And we might think then of a third reason perhaps Bassanio chooses lead because he has a little help from Portia. The casket test is set up as a patriarchal attempt to control Portia's marriage choice. She tells her first two to Morocco, in terms of choice, I am not solely led by nice direction of a maiden's eyes. As I look at that quotation, it's actually quite interesting. In terms of choice, I am not solely led by nice direction of a maiden's eyes. In fact, probably she ought to say, I'm not at all led by what, uh, interesting that word led actually, isn't it? Uh, Maybe maybe Morocco doesn't pick that up. uh, I'm solely led. Quite, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before, so I'm just thinking about that as I came along. But what, what I was going to say was well, she shouldn't be saying I'm not solely led, she should be saying I don't have any choice in this, shouldn't she? She's saying I don't have complete choice. Instead she says the lottery of my destiny bars me the right of voluntary choosing. The lottery of my destiny bars me the right of voluntary choosing. So Portia's father has constructed her as a fairy tale princess to whom suitor knights must come to complete a quest. Um, And rather like the um, uh, beginning, the opening scene of Pericles, I talk about in my lecture on on Pericles, which is a much more obviously fairy tale sort of folklore story, the king of Antiochus has set up a very similar kind of uh, fairy story in which knights come to woo the daughter if they are wrong, if they don't answer the riddle correctly, uh, they must uh, f- forego any, any chance of marrying anybody else. That's the same as is happening here. It, it's a situation which fits, fits Pericles, which is a very strange sort of old-fashioned, folks, folk-lore kind of a play. It doesn't perhaps fit quite so well in this play uh, about um, mercantile Venice. So Portia's father is established her then as this fairy tale princess but perhaps he has also given her a structure which enables her neatly to dispatch those suitors she doesn't want and to ally herself with one we've already been told she likes the best. Reminded by Nerissa of a Venetian, a scholar and a soldier who came to visit her father, she recalls, yes, yes, it was Bassanio, adding hastily perhaps to cover this over-eagerness, as I think so he was he called. So Portia has already identified Bassanio as her preferred suitor, And clearly in this play, which is so much concerned with intermarriage and with national and racial difference, with the point where uh, those differences can and can't be encompassed, the fact that her foreign suitors are such clearly impossible marriage partners for her is also made clear. Portia's reply when the Duke of Morocco withdraws, beaten from the contest, is uncomfortable. Let all of his complexion Choose me so. Editors have worked very hard to make complexion not mean skin colour, uh, but I think, it, I think it almost certainly does mean that. So let all of his complexion, choose me so, Portia says. Any more black suitors, I hope they all pick gold. And it's, that's an interesting background, I think, for uh, the kind of impossibility of Desdemona's marriage choice in Othello. So perhaps under the guise of submission to her father's authority, Portia may in reality be directing her own marriage choices. Critics have noted that at a crucial point of this scene, Act 3, Scene 2, a stage direction reads, A song, the whilst Bassanio comments on the caskets to himself. A Song the Whilst Bassanio Comments on the Caskets to Himself. It's an interesting stage direction, quite an unusual stage direction in Shakespeare, in that it suggests uh, that while the song is happening, uh, something else is going on on stage. Uh, that's not usually something that, w- that is indicated in the text of Shakespeare's play- plays. The lyrics which follow end, uh, famously, with a particular rhyming syllable. Tell me, where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head? how begot, how nourished. It's very easy in performance to use this as a pretty direct hint to Bassanio about which of the caskets he should choose. Now, idealised interpretations of Portia's character, after Inogen in Cymbeline, Portia was the uh, dominant Shakespearean heroine, she would have been ten points on uh, top trumps, Shakespeare top trumps, um, uh, in the Victorian cultural imagination. So, so Portia was a great sort of Victorian uh, h- heroine. And the idealised interpretations of her character, which which we still have, I think, we, which we inherit from that period, tend to resist this as an interpretation. Uh, the editor M.M. Mahood, uh, in the New Cambridge edition, so the current New Cambridge edition, is heir to these interpretations when she glosses the lines... Uh, saying that any suggestion that the song is a direction to Bassanio should be discounted because, quote, it belittles Portia's integrity and Bassanio's insight. It belittles Portia's integrity and Bassanio's insight. It's interesting to think that uh, we only know whether Portia has integrity or Bassanio has insight because of what they do on stage. We can't say that they already are that and then... ...interpret what they do on stage... ...in the light of that apparent information. Um, uh, And I think it's it's an interesting... uh, ...it's an interesting instance of an editor... ...actually intervening to say... ...no, this interpretation is not possible... on ...on character ground. Something I think we should resist. In plot terms, it would of course make absolute sense... ...for Portia to bypass patriarchal authority... ...and to pick her own husband since it would echo what Shylock's daughter Jessica does when she escapes his house to run off with her lover. And it would do something interesting, I think, to the fact about to those two women uh, and their um, strange absence of kind of interaction when they're on stage together uh, in the uh, uncomfortable final act of the play. It would, of course, also confirm Portia's control in the marriage. uh, And Portia goes on to assert her control... uh, dressing as a lawyer, uh, sort of trouncing all the uh, legal opinion in the, in the court in Venice, uh, berating her husband about the apparent loss of his wedding ring and so on. Uh, th- th- this is not someone who, uh, it, it, unusually perhaps for Shakespeare's heroines, we see quite a bit of Portia after she's agreed to marry. So she agrees to marry um, uh, Bassanio in Act 3, Scene 2. Uh, So this doesn't end quite with marriage. We see quite a lot of how she's going to behave in that role, and she certainly isn't going to be subservient (coughs) to him. Uh, Interestingly, she offers the money to pay off Antonio, uh, to pay off Shylock, to pay off Antonio's debt, even though legally, on marriage, her property would all be under the control of her husband. Uh, She doesn't seem to have any truck with that at all. There's no sense, I think, that Bassanio uh, will be in control here, and quite right too, since he's... Uh, He is established as a complete spendthrift. So perhaps, therefore, contrary to Freud, and following rather than subverting his source, Shakespeare does actually make the woman the ultimate chooser between the caskets after all. So, let's just recap where we are so far. Bassanio's reasons for choosing the casket are generic. It's what folklore heroes do. They're narrative and structural, we've had the alternatives already, so it's time uh, to have this third choice, and they are personal or perhaps situational, he gets a steer from Portia about the right answer. Now, I think the role of the caskets in the play is an interesting one, not least because it's so often understated. Uh, The the Merchant of Venice is a play uh, which has been... Interestingly, and in some ways appropriately distorted by a focus on Shylock. So Shylock appears in only five scenes of this play, but he's come to completely dominate the critical reception to it. Now, uh, I don't want to suggest that Shylock isn't important, but I want to try and sort of reintegrate him into a plot which is concerned with these same themes uh, throughout and to try and understand how the caskets uh, might fit to that. If we look at the play quantitatively, we can see that the three casket scenes... With the unsuccessful suitors, that's Act Two, Scene One, Act Two, Scene Seven, and Act Two, Scene Nine, form a considerable portion of the play's central section. And further, that they look and sound very different from the rest of the play. Uh, so, if, if we've got this kind of fairy tale uh, setup of, of these choices, we've also got a, a strangely uh, not necessarily fairy tale, but quite a formal language used to depict them. We get very long formal speeches in these scenes. Uh, Morocco speaks for 43 lines without a break, Aragon for 35 lines. These are very long speeches. We talked uh, last week in Tame of the Shrew about what a long speech does in, in, in uh, slowing things down uh, and in giving, raising lots of questions about what other characters are doing uh, during it. Even a big set-piece speech in this play, like Portia's famous courtroom speech, The Quality of Mercy, is only about 20 lines long. So this is not a play which goes in for big, long speeches. Comedies don't tend to do that, but the casket scenes do. We can hear the change in these scenes because they tend to be juxtaposed with prose scenes. Um, One technique I've mentioned before, but it's really worth doing, is is to read a play in a collected edition so you get a lot of text on the page. And you can just see the shape of uh, the language on the page. You know, If you're reading in a, an individual play text with lots of notes, you never get a feeling of the rhythm because you only get a tiny bit of text on each opening of the page. But if you look at a big edition like the Ox- Complete Oxford or the Norton or uh, even the RSC Shakespeare, you see a big sweep of how the language works and you can see juxtapositions between scenes much more easily. And what you'll see here is we get these long blocks of verse speech in the casket scenes and around them we get prose. This is a play with a lot of prose and some very lively and kind of energetic prose. Even Bassanio becomes rather orotund in the presence of the casket, speaking by far his longest speech at around 40 lines uh, in 3.2. And I think the slowness of the dramaturgy about the casket scenes, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is these are scenes which we want to um, kind of breeze over because we don't think they're important, and by contrast, the play has actually really invested in them because it's slowing the action down so that we can't just jump over them. That's, a, that's, a kind of, that's an interesting uh, disjunction for me in what we tend to think of about the play and what the play seems to want us to think, and that's the disjunction I'm trying to explore. The dramaturgy of these scenes seems to emphasise a, kind of, a kind of stasis amplified by rather static or tableau-type images. Let's take this stage direction from the beginning of Act Two. Enter, this is from the uh, folio. Enter Moroccus, a tawny moor, all in white, and three or four followers accordingly, with Portia, Nerissa, and their train, flourish cornets. So, enter Moroccus, a tawny moor, all in white, and three or four followers accordingly, with Portia, Nerissa, and their train, uh, flourish cornets. Uh, the, the sound of the cornet. On the Elizabethan stage tends to signal the entrance of important people what we tend to call a permissive stage direction three or four followers that's saying uh, really saying as many as you can manage you can do it with three if you've only got three but if you've got four it would be better that suggests that the dignity and size of Morocco's accompanying train is important these are people who never speak in the scene so they're there to be visual they're there to add to his dignity And the train, similarly, of Portia and Nerissa, we don't know how many people that's supposed to be, but this is a very crowded uh, stage with two uh, very formal processions kind of meeting each other. I think that's what we're supposed to visualise, the tawny moor all in white with three or four followers sort of coming in from one side, and Portia and Nerissa and their train coming in from the other. This is a spectacle. The dark skin of the moor contrasted with white robes, a kind of exotic tableau. Only Morocco and Portia speak in this scene, despite all these extranumerary uh, characters, uh, and they exchange only seven speeches. So the overall impression is of formality and stilted uh, kind of movement. Again, this tends to make the scene seem longer or slower than it actually is. There's also no suspense in it. We already pretty much know that these are not suitors who are going to marry Portia, not least because as soon as Bassanio mentions Portia in Act 1, Scene 1, we then flip and meet her. It's what cinema would do as a kind of shot, reverse shot, which is a way of saying these, these are, this is the couple, this is our couple here. And the, the way drama does it is to flip between the scenes. So the play structure, I'm trying to say, is a, is a kind of curious one uh, because the casket scenes are too long, uh, too static, too deliberative for the, kind of, the amount of plot that they carry. And as I say, I'm labouring this point a bit because most analyses of The Merchant of Venice are preoccupied elsewhere, largely with Shylock. And and what I want to try and do in the rest of the lecture is to think about how how the casket sequence works in the the whole of the plot using a range uh, of critical tools. We might also add, so we've, we've said why does Bassanio choose the lead casket? But we might just think about reasons why he might not have done. Other evidence in the play makes it seem actually rather implausible that that's the one that he would choose. After all, Bassanio is quite clearly somebody who is interested in money, uh, who wants to marry Portia because she is wealthy, and who has uh, pursued her, uh, sort of togged up with all the money that's been borrowed on his behalf, in order to appear more wealthy than he is. He couldn't be less like the lead casket that is what it is and has a kind of integrity uh, to it. So his wooing of Portia is a kind of confidence trick funded by the proto-capitalist credit economy of Venetian money lending, and it's underwritten by expectations of mercantile gain. Talking to Antonio in the opening scene about his financial situation, Bassanio admits he has, quote, disabled mine estate by something showing a more swelling port than my faint means would grant continuance. Something showing a more swelling port. So he spent more on appearances than his wealth could sustain. But there's a kind of pomposity to the way he expresses that, which uh, suggests that he isn't quite uh, he doesn't seem very contrite about it. There's, a, there's a, that, that, that rather wheedling kind of evasive tone he has there. But he persuades Antonia by means of a childhood simile that the thing to do about this situation is actually to throw more money at it. In my school days, when I had lost one shaft, one arrow, I shot his fellow of the self same flight, the self same way, with more advised watch to find the other fourth. And by adventuring both, I oft found both. Uh, So a lost arrow, shoot another one in the same direction and watch watch it more carefully, and you may find both. Of course, what Bassanio doesn't suggest is that you may also lose both, uh, which is also possible. This counsel of sending good money or good arrows after bad, and more particularly the language of adventuring, um, is a, a really important kind of financial set of uh, kind of financial considerations that the play evokes right from the start. The language of adventuring or of uh, risking um, particularly money in expectation of gain is applied to Bassanio's romantic quest. You'll remember his first mention of Portia is in Belmont is a lady richly left. Portia is likened to the Golden Fleece and Bassanio to a questing Jason, but he's a Jason who needs a lot of money in order to be able to go and claim his prize. Modern critics have estimated the value of 3,000 ducats, a sum even Shylock cannot instantly raise up, to be in the region of £375,000 in modern money. It's quite a lot to ask your friend to borrow on your behalf. It's also quite a lot to invest in the enterprise of going uh, to get married. Bassanio is making a considerable investment in the success of his enterprise. He doesn't seem to do anything else with the money, so far as we can tell, apart from uh, buy things uh, to, to make his uh, approach to Portia look impressive. So it's a, it's a big uh, splurge, I think. Immediately, the Prince of Aragon has been sent away from Belmont for wrongly choosing silver, the messenger tells Portia that another suitor is at her gates, bringing gifts of rich value. A day in April never came so sweet to show how costly summer was at hand, says the messenger. And that adjective "costly," which doesn't really quite attach itself to summer properly, uh, is a is a really good indication of how much uh, uh, what a show uh, Bassanio has put on. And we, having seen the financial. Uh, Backroom transactions know exactly how much this has cost, 3,000 ducats. So we can go further in connecting the language of love and the language of speculation and investment in a way that works to overturn a standard understanding of the play's thematic locations. Earlier 20th century critics have tended to want to see Portia's realm of Belmont as the absolute opposite of Venice, a kind of fairy tale princess uh, castle, quite different from uh, the mean streets uh, of the urban conurbation. That's a reading which would see Belmont uh, an apparently imaginary place. It's not a a real uh, geographical place. Uh, Belmont is the absolute opposite of Venice. Uh, Made up rather than real, feminine rather than masculine, romantic rather than mercantile, feudal rather than capitalist, folkloric or courtly rather than modern, and urban fairy tale rather than realistic. So this would be a, this is a set of binaries which is quite familiar to us from the way uh, critics have wanted to conceptualise Shakespeare's use of dual locations, the court and the forest in As You Like It or in Midsummer Night's Dream, Rome and Egypt in Antony and Cleopatra. I've talked about uh, uh, all, all three of those uh, plays. Uh, and in those lectures, as here, I'm suggesting that I think what we can now see is that the similarities between those dual locations tend to be as prominent as their differences. What Shakespeare tends, seems to me to do is to set up places which look at first sight to be quite distinct, quite opposite, uh, and really to unpick that uh, illusion of difference and to show how uh, closely elided they are. That's particularly true in The Merchant of Venice, I think, Belmont is not an ethical alternative to the mercantile world of Venice, but its logical extension. The language of the casket scenes is the language of hazard, of speculation and investment. Romantic relationships are monetized in this play along with, any, with everything else. And perhaps in this sense, Bassanio does in fact take seriously the motto he reads on the lead casket, who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. Who chooses me must give and hazard all he hath. There's a sort of idealised sense in which that motto suggests uh, noble virtues of self-sacrifice and generosity. They're not actually particularly characteristics we've seen Bassanio showing. Uh, but Bassanio's genuine or strategic willingness to commit himself to this motto, who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath, takes on a different quality when we remind ourselves he doesn't have anything of his own to hazard. Uh, Bassanio is speculating, but he is being bankrolled by other people. Giving and hazarding all you have is pretty easy to do when it's not yours in the first place. In Rupert Gould's production of The Merchant of Venice for the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford in 2011, Venice was replaced by Las Vegas, a perfect metaphor in the world in the words of The Guardian's theatre critic Michael Billington for a world of financial and romantic fantasy. And this is Billington talking about the casket scenes. The casket scenes are turned into a TV game show called Destiny. Remember my uh, lottery uh, 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 is, is Destiny uh, in the quote I read earlier, a TV game show called Destiny in which Susanna Fielding's stunning Portia dons a bl- blonde wig and southern accent. She becomes, as it were, the hostess of a preposterous lottery in which her marital future is being decided. This provides wonderful comedy with the Prince of Morocco turning up as an avaricious contestant in golden boxing shorts. Now, what Gould's production, uh, which, which was de- a very, very controversial production, um, and really worth Googling the reviews on that, they're very, very interesting. What, what Gould's production uh, achieved was, um, a produ- was, I think, a view of the play which turned on the casket scenes, which had a way of understanding how they might work through this game show updating. And what it achieved was um, uh, the establishing the, the kind of tawdry glamour of Las Vegas as a modern corollary uh, ...of the play's setting, a kind of bling world, and that, that must be what Bassanio uh, is, is, is himself participating in... ...a kind of overconsumption, a conspicuous consumption, uh, in order to try and impress. That's something that I think Gould felt uh, we would associate with Vegas. But he was also, in the production, able to link together the play's apparently disparate modes of fairy tale and realism... ...to understand their shared financial basis... Uh, setting up the casket scene as a kind of winner-takes-all uh, game show uh, puts kind of greed and, and sort of personal advancement uh, at the heart of both plots. Now, comedies, as we know from lots of occasions in these lectures, comedies work by inter-implicating a social world of characters. They bond characters together, uh, and we've gone through this lots of times. Tragedies, t- broadly speaking, split people off from each other. They break up relationships. Uh, They they move towards solitude and isolation. Comedies build up relationships and they move towards a busy stage at the end where everybody's there uh, joining together in in some kind of uh, festivity and uh, in in renewed bonds. Merchant of Venice does this too. It's a comedy in that respect. But the kinds of connections between its comic characters uh, that it makes are all monetary They're all mercantile. The relationship between characters is financial. And the title of the play makes that clear. It's the only one of the comedies to have uh, an, a name as the title rather than a kind of mood or a disposition. I'm just going to talk a little bit about mercantilism, uh, the, 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 the activity of merchants, the economic development associated with merchants that we call mercantilism. So mercantilism is the rise of an economic system based uh, at at its simplest level on merchants as middlemen between producers and consumers. So very simple... uh, uh, The the economics of simple societies is either that producers and consumers are the same people So self-sufficiency, a model of self-sufficiency, or that they are very close to each other uh, geographically or familiarly. So the people who produce, say, food and the people who consume that food either are the same people, they produce and consume their own food, or they're they're close together in a a, a kind of village or a small community. Um, Mercantilism develops with much uh, larger uh, social Uh, structures with the the rise of cities and so on, uh, and brings in an economic system uh, which interpolates middlemen in in between that relationship. And it develops as part of the rapid expansion of London in the 16th century. London, like Venice, was a trading city oriented along its waterways. Lots of very interesting parallels uh, the early modern period draws between Venice and London uh, and I think most people would think of The Merchant of Venice that it's got really no idea about Venice at all. It's not really very detailedly about Venice. Uh, I think if Shakespeare had done really any work on Venice at this time, he would have known about the ghetto, the part of the city where Jews were required to live. That would seem so important to the theme that uh, it's odd that he doesn't mention it. And I think that's partly because he's not really very bothered about Venice uh, as a location uh, beyond the name. So mercantilism is a, is a recognisable feature of London uh, contemporary urban life, it's not something which is specific to Venice. Now the main function of the merchant is to buy and to sell, to speculate by buying goods at a low price, or where they are plentiful, and to sell them where the price is higher, because the goods are scarce – So merchants are associated with sort of manipulating the market, holding things back until the price goes up, but also with importing, with bringing things like uh, uh, spices or those kinds of things from places where they're actually very cheap, uh, undertaking the labour of bringing them and and, uh, selling them at a premium. So merchant culture is crucial to the development of early modern capitalism and to the development of a credit economy. Usury the commercial lending of money at interest had been long forbidden because of biblical strictures against it, but it was made legal in England in 1571 with the interest rate set at 10%. It was not at this point in England particularly associated with Jews, uh, not least because uh, the Jews had been banished in the 13th century and were not able to be part of this uh, new uh, economic world. But religious controversy about the ethics of commercial money lending uh, continued to be a feature of late Elizabethan discourse. The 1594 publication called The Death of Usury or The Disgrace of Usurers uh, is one, one example of how this controversy about whether usury was an was a, uh, ethically or morally good thing uh, raged. Now, both mercantilism and its necessary companion, credit or money lending, are explored in The Merchant of Venice largely by transposing them into human relationships. Okay, so I think these, uh, f- these financial ideas, these economic ideas, are humanised uh, and they, they're most interestingly explored in human relationships. Bassanio needs money and goes to Antonio, who goes to Shylock, who goes to Tubal. The connective bonds between these people are figured as transactions – and these are all transactions constructed via intermediaries. Okay, so if you're thinking about a, a, a plot structure, about somebody who needs to borrow some money in order to do something, you probably wouldn't imagine all these other people, it, it's, it's an unnecessary confusion unless that's your point. What's the point of Tubal? There's no point to him, is there? Except, he doesn't do anything in the play, except to add another chain to this Di- sort of distended uh, links, these distended links of credit, of a credit economy linking people together. And I want to try and see the merchant's intermediary role in financial uh, matters as a, t- a sort of different key to Antonio's curiously overinvolved triangulation in the relationship between Bassanio and Porsche. Okay, so I want to think of um, Antonio as a kind of middleman ...in a transaction between Bassanio and Portia... ...which is the role we might think of the merchant. In a metaphorical sense, Antonio adds value to Bassanio... ...and sells him at a kind of profit to the wealthy heiress Portia. Just as Bassanio's own credit-fuelled courtship... ...lays out 3,000 ducats, not his own... ...to win a fortune of at least 36,000 ducats... ...the sum of uh, double 6,000 and then treble that... ...that um, Portia is prepared to pay to Shylock to release Antonio from his bond. So we know that Portia has at least 36,000 ducats uh, in her own dowry. Um, so that's, that's a pretty good return on the 3,000 uh, already. Shylock himself would have been pleased to receive this return of interest... ...when he uses the biblical example of Laban's sheep to boast about how fast his money breeds. Portia is herself conscious of her new husband as something she has bought... Since you are dear bought, I will love you dear. Since you are dear bought, I will love you dear. The repetition of dear tries to recuperate it from something meaning expensive. You are dear bought, uh, you have been an expensive Plaything, expensive toy, to a more kind of emotional, kind of moral sort of sense of dear, like a lot, I will love you a lot, I will love you nobly. Um, but, but somehow it, uh, it, I don't think that quite works, there's not quite enough space in the line to do that um, 180 degree turn from uh, cost to uh, value that, that the line tries to do. Since you are dear bought, I will love you dear. So understanding the triangulated relationship between Antonio, Bassanio and Portia, less in psychological terms and more perhaps as a metaphor for the play's understanding of the merchant and of merc- mercantile economics, can be helpful. Of course, the potential loss of this is that we lose that psychological explanation. Antonio, as you remember, opens the play uh, with the uh, with a lament about his sadness. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. And it's a question that the play never answers. Why is he so sad? Uh, what's wrong with him? Uh, many critics and directors have felt they know exactly what's wrong with him. Uh, he's in love with Bassanio, uh, and this unrequited uh, kind of passion is the source of uh, this melancholy that cannot uh, bespoken. Um, if you think about Jeremy Irons perhaps in Al Pacino's film, uh, or The Merchant, that's a, a good example. We could also try and see Antonio uh, as an older figure, a kind of equivalent to Shylock, um, and that these are two rather interesting um, new versions of the comic tradition of the blocking figure reimagined for a kind of commercialised uh, comedy, uh, comedy of commerce. Uh, the blocking figure is supposed to stop things uh, from happening, stop marriages from taking place. Uh, and in their different ways, both Antonio and Shylock actually enable man- marriages to take place, but they enable that by uh, translating them into financial uh, bonds of a different sort. So, as I've said before in these lectures, there are real gains to the work of recovery of erotic same sex relationships in Shakespeare. And one way to understand the particular charge of the bond between Antonio and Bassanio is to sexualise it. Certainly their relationship is a good example of something I discussed in Much Ado About Nothing, the necessity of male bonds to break when faced with heterosexual marriage, the painful breaking of those bonds. When Shylock wets his knife in the courtroom, ready to take the pound of flesh from Antonio's body, Bassanio interjects. Antonio, I am married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all, sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. So, my, so life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all, sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. Portia. Uh, disguised uh, as the lawyer, uh, remarks, your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were by to hear you make the offer. So after his marriage to Portia, that's to say, uh, Bassanio is still identifying his primary attachment with Antonio, very explicitly here, saying I would give up my marriage, I would give up everything in order to save you. And the ending of the play is a long uh, attempt by Portia to... Uh, realign that to say uh, all the business about the ring who who had the ring, why did he give the ring away these are ways of of breaking that bond and saying your primary bond uh, should now be with your wife even when Portia and Bassanio are reconciled at the end of the play and Bassanio vows never to break faith with her again, the mercantile basis of their relationship is reasserted by having Antonio come back into it again So Antonio again becomes the intermediary. I once did lend my body for his wealth, I dare be bound again, my soul upon the forfeit, that your Lord will never more break faith advisedly. So the language of forfeit, of credit and trust is a financial vocabulary only partially here turned to the emotional realm. Why doesn't this love triangle end in uh, Merchant of Venice by being resolved into two couples? Why is there no marriage partner for Antonio? One answer might well be unrequited homosexuality in the character. Uh, I talk about another Antonio, uh, also unmarried at the end of his comedy uh, in the lecture on Twelfth Night. But there might be another reason which is less uh, psychosexual and more... Uh, financially structural, it may be that the structure of mercantilism, the exploration of these kinds of financial transactional relationships, is the character equivalent of uh, those kinds of intermediaries that advanced capitalism has put between producers and consumers. Antonio, that's to say, is a merchant Uh, or intermediary in the emotional realm as a metaphor uh, for his activities uh, as a financial intermediary. So I've been arguing here that choosing the lead casket is a kind of symbol or or a kind of nexus to think about the role of finance and of mercantilism uh, in this play. And to suggest, if we had a bit more time, we could think about this, uh, the ways that the casket scene, therefore, is interconnected uh, thematically with uh, the role of Shylock, the role of money lending, uh, and the bond, uh, the, the notions of equivalence, uh, whether a pound of flesh can be equal to 3,000 ducats and so on, uh, that criticism has been very interested in uh, in this play. Uh, and I've tried to say that the casket scene, I think, is actually a really good example of mercantile uh, Bonds, mercantile hazard, and adventuring rather than a fairy tale escape from that world. As throughout these lectures, I've tried to suggest that motivation, the question of why things happen, or, or causality, maybe, uh, in these plays, tends to be looked at in character terms. That's the way we perhaps naturally feel uh, we want to answer these questions. But I keep, I suppose, trying to suggest that there are situational reasons, there are non-character, non-psychological reasons that these things happen uh, in plays. uh, And that here, as elsewhere, uh, the reasons why uh, Bassanio picks the lead casket are potentially historical, theatrical and generic. Thank you.